Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Books in Psychology. I'm Eugenio Duarte, your host, as well as a psychoanalyst and clinical psychologist in Miami. I want to welcome back to the show today, Jamison Webster. She was on the show before in March 2019 to talk about her then new book, Conversion Disorder. And she's back today to talk about her new book, Disorganization and Sex, published in 2022 by Divided Publishing. Jamison Webster is a psychoanalyst in New York City. She is the author of The Life and Death of Psychoanalysis, as well as Conver- Conversion Disorder, as mentioned. She also wrote, co-wrote with Simon Critchley, Stay Illusion, The Hamlet Doctrine, and she contributes regularly to the publications Apology, Art Forum, Spike Art Magazine, and New York Review of Books. Jamison, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Johanio. The last time that we talked uh, was before the pandemic, so a lot has happened since then. How have you been? Well, I feel like it's been a pretty wild ride, and I still don't, I still am in whiplash. So, mm-hmm. um, but there are many moments in the pandemic. I worked in the hospitals with doing palliative care, uh, I had a daughter. Um, Congratulations! You know, we all went. We all went from Zoom back into person. You know, Trump went away. It's mm-hmm. been wild. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been a ride. It's been a ride. How did this book come into being? It's a good question. Um, I was contacted by the publishers, who are um, a team, but they're very interested in the intersection of art and theory and psychoanalysis and philosophy. Um, and they said, do you have anything or do you want to publish? And I, I said, well, there's a lot that's around that isn't published as a book. There's a lot of things online or talks that have been given. Do you want to take a look at them? And they did a deep dive through all my stuff and kind of came up with this, um, this pitch that this could be a book, that it could be a collection of, of kind of more um, public-facing articles at the same time without compromising um, 
you know, whatever psychoanalysis theory and, and trying to present that to a broader, broader audience. How does it feel for you to see all of your work in a book like this? Oh, it's, it's terrifying. <laughs> it's kind of horrifying. I, I kind of like hiding things all over the internet or in like various edited collections. And, you know, I don't know, only these people see that or only those people see that. So it is very funny to see it all together. Mm-hmm. And some of the articles are very old. I mean, some of them go back to um, 2011, I think is the first chapter is the oldest article. So it's, um, but there was something really nice to uh, making friends with the skeletons in the closet. So I have, mm-hmm. to, I have to say that that was, um, that did something for me. What do you think it did for you? It made me less afraid. Um, and there's something I don't, I, I, I don't know if this is just me as a writer, but when I'm done with something, I don't look back at it very much. Um, and it has a moment in which it lives you know, with me and then it goes public and then I will take care of it for a little while. And then I don't want to ever see it again. And sometimes little flashes of these things come across my screen and you have that reaction. Like when you hear your own voice on a, on an audio recording that, you know, you're sort of horrified. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I found that going back to these pieces and I, I re-edited and rewrote a lot of them and, and mm. seeing all this continuity that I could have continuity. is sort of surprising. <laughs> Because <laughs> I feel like a thousand different people, so um, that there's one thinking person here who seems to be still in contact with herself 12 years mm-hmm. ago is sort of wild to me. I'm glad that you had that experience. Um, why is the book called Disorganization and Sex? So this was a theme that they pulled out, and I was like, huh. And I was like, that's a strange title. Uh, <laughs> and I've really come to love it. And it started with that first article, The Disorganizing Force of Desire, which didn't, that wasn't the title, but it became very clear to me why they took the title and, and why they took that theme from that article and then saw it as um, a through line through, um, you know, in a lot of the articles and the idea is fundamentally, and I, I listened to your interview with Tim, Tim Dean and Oliver um, on the hatred of sex. And so both of us are kind of sniffing around the same territory. And it's a very psychoanalytic ground with respect to the fact that, that what psychoanalysis posits with respect to the sexual, sexual life, sexual history is that it, it's always there as a disruptive force within one's life. And that this disruptive force is actually quite important. I mean, it bugs us and we all want it to be quiet and go away or like kind of live more seamlessly (laughs) streamlined with our lives, but it's never going to do that. And it's also what keeps open the possibilities of the future. So the, the first article was actually called on a question of the future of psychoanalysis and then asked this question about how psychoanalysis thinks about the future. But in fact, it's an article about desire. Um, so, and, and it's true that it's there in all of the work. So, Mm -hmm. so I want to get into that, that essay, the disorganizing force of desire. And I want to start with your thoughts on the idea of progress of always Mm -hmm. striving towards some goal or some outcome that we say that we want. And on page five, you say, quote, the ideal of progress forces one to try and anxiously hold the future captive, which runs the risk of of abandoning a modesty singular to psychoanalysis. Can you explain what you mean about 
how progress is holding the future captive. Mm. You know, it's one of these um, moments that something became very clear to me that I had never thought about, that, that there's other ways of thinking about time, about lived life than, you know, simply progression on a line. And that the idea of our fulfillment, fruition, reaching authenticity, integration, you know, enlightenment even, um, is just one way of thinking about things. And in fact, if you think about psychoanalysis, things are quite repetitive, quite circular. With every child, you have to reinvent the wheel. You have to induct them into the trauma of sexuality and language. I mean, it's not as if, you know, one thing picks up or the other thing left off in this way where I do think that we almost ideologically or phantasmatically kind of imagine ourselves to be on this progressive line, you know, into our, our great, our great, um, you know, whatever, our great futures of us. And I also understand how hard it would be to give that up. You know, like oh, if there's no progress, then what, you know, what am I doing? Forget it. I'm going to lie on the ground. I'm never going to wake up today. And to kind of sit in that problematic was is really interesting. And I think psychoanalysis gives the hard message that that um, progress is a fantasy, and it's a fantasy in particular that makes us not open our eyes to neurosis, to trauma, to sexuality. It's a it's a model that wants to bury those things, and the way that we repeat, <laughs> we keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again, and and we're repeating we're repeating the mistakes of our of our ancestors. But as you know, many of our patients come into our offices wanting to fix something, improve something, and they they talk about progress. They use that word, I'm making progress or I'm not making progress, but how do I make progress? When that comes up in your office, how do you respond to that? How How do you find a way to get such patients interested in a different way of thinking about their lives? Mm-hmm. I mean, to an extent, I think that you don't take it head on unless you really need to, because I think it's something that falls away on its own. But if you, the analyst, is invested in the progress of the patient, I think you're going to end up in a lot of trouble. You're going to end up doing all kinds of things to prove to yourself or them that they're making progress versus what we do, which is a very careful act of listening that I don't know, that maybe makes them pay attention to other things than that. And to see also that progress, the idea of progress or making progress is, is incredibly anxiety filled. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so? so we had, well, you know, am I okay? Am I doing right? Am I, you know, it's in a way there's a, there's a real appeal to somebody to authorize one's existence. And there's, you know, according to this psychoanalyst, no such, no such person, no such mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. In this chapter, you also focus on unconscious desire, a major theme throughout mm-hmm. the book, and you distinguish it from what we typically think of as desire, such as I want this house or I want to sleep with that person. Could you tell us about the kind of desire that you're talking about and what it means for desire to be unconscious? Mm-hmm. You know, the the... Lacanian, Jacques Lacan was a psychoanalyst in France, and he was a great reader of Freud. And he was the one who kind of excavated this word desire. 
from Freud, who it's not that he didn't use it, but he used all kinds of words. He used wish and he used drive and he used love and he used libido. So Lacan kind of condensed all of those into this (laughs) one word desire. And what he was with the kind of key point that he was taking from Freud is that very early on our pleasure and unpleasure is, um, mapped as a child it's dealt with the child you know the way the parents take care of a child you're constantly imposing limits and you're also gratifying and you're transmitting your own sense of pleasure and your own history and trauma and within this there's um a series of losses that the child goes through with respect to um sexual attachment points, incredibly condensed libidinal points. So the attachment to the primary caregiver, whether that's whoever that is, is an intense relationship that then is lost in its intensity. The relationship to the great orality of the baby is, has to, the, the baby has to move on from it. Um, you know, we talk about potty training where you have to learn to control your body, but there's all kinds of controls beyond potty training. I mean, having to sit down, having to pay attention, having to figure out how to use your hands to write. I mean, all of these bodily controls, how to play sports, you know, how to have table manners. Um, you know, and so the child gives up pleasures at those places and also finds other ones. And then there's the discoveries of sexuality, masturbation, so on and so forth. And all of these pleasures you have to traverse, but then also suffer some defeats in relationship to and some prohibitions and some limits. And the word desire kind of springs out from that picture of childhood that says um, somewhere in there is both a whole series of pleasures, experiences, and losses that have been deeply felt. And that later in life, you're you're searching for something again. You're looking for it all the time, in the people you fall in love with, in the movies that you love, in the music that you listen to, in the weather that you enjoy, and the kind of walks you like to take. And it's never anything that's satisfied once and for all. And it sort of thinks that certain things are going to come along and satisfy it, a bagel, that lover, whatever it is, but they're not. And they're just, they're getting you close to this, this, I don't know, this fabric of your existence. And it's very important because I think we're afraid of it. And psychoanalysis, the whole point is to get you closer to it, to experience the satisfactions and dissatisfactions, but to also harness it in a way that, um, you know, can, can be something that you can live with, I guess. Why do you think, sorry, please go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Why do you think we're afraid of our desire? I think there's something fundamental about its unconsciousness that makes it scary because it's not in your control. It's so far from conscious thought, like a kind of graspable thought. I mean, it's really a pressure that you feel inside of you and it it has so much ambiguity and so much unknown. And I don't think we're, I don't think we're very good at dealing with that space. Um, You know, I mean, I think that personality is constructed in a way not to deal with it, to like kind of bifurcate these realms of life to an extreme, but nevertheless, I think it will always have this jagged edge that makes it difficult. That makes it something a little bit, a little bit scary. And even so scary, psychoanalysis makes the kind of amazing point that we don't even want to satisfy it because then it has, the engine has to start up again. So we'd rather kind of keep it like, you know, like (laughs) murmuring at a certain level without like letting it satisfy and then have to restart the engine and find out what's next. Um, Hmm. They called that, 
they call that a desire for unsatisfied desire to live with like one singular dissatisfaction that you can moan about forever. <laughs> so so are, are you saying that this unconscious desire that you're talking about is it's, it's not supposed to be satisfied because it, it, it is an energy. It is, it is generative. We, we need it. Yeah. Except for there are satisfactions nevertheless. So it can never be satisfied once and for all, but it can, I, I think, reach points of important satisfaction. And these points of important satisfaction, it's not as if it stops the whole machine. It will never stop until you die. Um, but that, that allowing those satisfactions to take place as if you, 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 know, you complete a circle, then you get to start a new circle. <laughs> Still the same damn circle, but at least it's a new one. It's not that you were stuck on the the, the one from you know five years ago or whatever it is. Um, and I, I I think that's important. I think that's really important. Is your idea about unconscious desire similar to or synonymous in any way with intuition, or is intuition something different? No, I think it is close to intuition in a way because it's an it's the way that um, I think about it is a knowledge that you don't know, Um, a a whole kind of affective terrain that you can access. You know that 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 almost has it it leads you rather than you leading it. And intuition, certainly when certain people talk about it, has that quality. And you also hear about it if you work with artists. I mean, I'm not, I, I mean, I'm a writer, maybe that's its own kind of art, but, you know, I work a lot with artists or people in the creative industries and, and they know what it means to, to access that space and start to move within it when they're painting or when they're making music or whatever it would be. I want to talk about a, another essay in the book titled On the Ongoing Realities of Sexual Abuse. It's mm-hmm. a different topic. Obviously, it's it's something that brings a lot of people into our offices. Um, in, in your opinion, what are some of the most devastating effects of sexual abuse on a person? I mean, one of the most devastating effects of abuse on a person is that, um, you know, precisely in terms of what we're talking about with respect to desire, I think it can kill desire almost completely. Because you don't want, you know, in order to access desire, you have to be able to access all of those um, most intimate experiences. And when there's such violence, um, which sexual abuse is, um, on the level of one's bodily integrity, one's sense of intimacy, one's sense of trust around those things, then it becomes very hard to desire. Um, Furthermore, I think guilt. <laughs> I think the, the, the most devastating thing is that in the end, I think one of the things you hear from people who are abused, sexually abused, is that they feel guilty for um, the abuse that was done to them, as if they can't even experience the full uh, repudiation of the violence, you know, as if they take some of it upon their own shoulders and live with it and live constrained by that guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to even start to get into it, what is it exactly that you feel guilty for or responsible for is very, very difficult to do because then you have to revisit everything and you have to go over, um, almost to the, the, if it's, you know, especially if it's something that happened to you when you were young, the, the mind of a child, which always thinks that the bad things that happened to them, that they deserved them. 
You know? So when, when you're working with someone who either tells you that they, they know that they've undergone some sort of sexual abuse or, or, or they don't know, but you suspect it, I guess the answer might be different in these two different cases. What, what are the most, what are the things that you're most thinking about? Like, what are you, what do you think is most important to do or be sensitive to in treating such a person? Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, it's the space for them to speak about it um, and speak about it and speak about it and speak about it as much as possible and to be a, a guide and a companion as they do that. Um, the, the chapter in the book is complicated because I was asked, um, around that time when that, that was published, um, as part of the journal, uh, Penumbra, which is coming out of this, uh, Sunni school. They have a, a, uh, they have a, I think a master's and a doctorate level program in psychoanalytic studies. And they were putting together this journal to talk about the question of sexual abuse in psychoanalysis. And I had written an article for me too, you know, like, like pro me too and the whole question of me too and all these people who were speaking out about their the varieties of of experiences of sexuality that they found damaging and and part of the lives of women in the united states i know it went all over the world but it really started here um but then they wanted me (laughs) they wanted me to write clinically about the place where this becomes a problem and I, you know, I was, I was like, God, that's so tough. Thanks guys. Um, Sorry, well, the I, part where what becomes a problem? Um, where, at what point does the question of the validating of mm-hmm. the, the question of sexual abuse, what, how is that a problem psychoanalytically speaking, you know? And, and it is, there's a, there's a difficulty, which is that um, you have to make room for all possibilities within the field of sexual abuse that it happened, that, like, did it happen? How did it happen? What happened? And not jump too quickly on the, you were, you know, this was abuse. This was terrible. You know, that they, all of the guilt, as I just said, that to allow that time to elaborate itself, because it's going to come up with like, well, maybe it wasn't abuse. Maybe I asked for it, you know, all of the kinds of, of complicated feelings. And the analyst has to sit on their hands and, you know, they said, well, how could you write about this clinically? And I said, well, I could write about some really difficult cases where I was put in the position of having to confirm the reality of a sexual abuse asked by a client to do so. And I had to, to not. And I, I didn't, there was not a happy position for me, but it was one that I felt was incredibly important. And then to try to articulate why that's important, psychoanalytically speaking. Um, so that, that's where that article kind of came from. And you talk about it in the chapter and you talk about some of your experiences working with people who've experienced sexual abuse and then have demanded what you said, that you recognize them as having been abused and that you've refused to do so and the patient's been quite angry. Can can you explain why you have refused this demand and why you think it's important? Mm-hmm. I think in the cases that I brought up, um, importantly, the demand was deep into the treatment. So I had spent a lot of time with um, the clients. One was in particular an analysis, so she'd been coming five days a week <laughs> for years. And so the question as an analyst is, why are you asking for this now? Why do you feel like you need this now? 
And that felt to me like the more important question to ask than to simply treat this as if it was an objective um, ask of a professional. I think if this was asked in the very early days, I would have handled it much differently. It wouldn't have been flat out refusal. It would have been a lot of investigation of the abuse and like, you know, let's talk about this. Let's talk, tell me about the abuse, not tell me about the whole story. Let's get into it. And to see if that demand, can you tell me if I was abused for certain, will you be the authority who comes in and validates this for me? I would have seen what happened in the process of beginning to speak about this with these clients. They had spoken about it many, many years in very important ways. And then suddenly there is this demand. But I do think the way in which you encounter it in an analysis makes you think about what the demand could be in any given situation clinically, which was, you know, I think the person wanting to um, close something down just to like, you know, one and done. Could you please tell me this? Let's just, you know, let's get it on the table. Let's, let's say this was a horrible thing that should happen. And then like, let's, let's, let's close it down rather than at this point there's, you know, we have gone very far in the question of what happened to you. And now you have to continue to live with some of the ambiguity that's left there with all of the complicated feelings that are coming up. And I think with recommencing her desire life, her sexual life in a new way, still having this history and still having this history open. And that I think was the hardest thing for, for the client. You kind of anticipated my follow-up question, which is how, how does it help the patient to refuse this demand and to stay with the ambiguity and stay with the unanswered questions? And are you saying that it is a pathway to reclaiming some of their unconscious desire? I do. I think so. I think reclaiming it without having to imagine that you can only do so by tying up all of the ribbons on the box, um, shutting the lid, sorting out what's good and what's bad, making sure that you're on the side of the good and then being like, okay, now I will (laughs) move into this new territory of trusting someone, of starting a life with them, of not imagining that they're going to abuse me again, of figuring out, um, you know, and I I think that there was a real palpable demand from the patient that, that her life, that I be the force that makes her life, you know, organized (laughs) in this fashion Uh to use the title of the book rather than live with, with the disorganization that was there um, and that we had, you know, except maybe that we had done the most that we could mm-hmm. Up, mm-hmm. up until that point. It, this also brings up another topic that you address in the chapter about truth. And I want to read an excerpt in which mm-hmm. you share your thoughts on the concept of truth. Uh, on page 159, you write, quote, truth is not in my hands, nor even is it in the patient's hands from a psychoanalytic perspective. It is on the side of the act of speaking and on the side of the unconscious, which only appears here and there, never in a full way, end quote. Can you say what you mean here? Yeah, no, that, that's, um, thank you for reading that to me. That's so nice. <laughs> It's one of those moments when I'm like, oh, I like my, I like my own voice. Um, <laughs> no, it's very important that the analyst isn't the one who, who we don't believe that we're judges or God who can, we, it, we don't even believe that that's possible, that one can say good, bad, true, false. 
Um, and I, you know, we want that. We all want that. We've wanted that as long as we've been alive, that someone could just do this for us. And we have to be very careful that we don't become gurus and that we don't become authorities in that manner of speaking. And that the, the truths that appear that are never full, but that are impact you in analysis that, 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 that we get access to those, that we recognize them, that they appear, they leave all kinds of questions still in their way, but you do touch some truth and you have to accept that, that, that this is as much as one gets and one still has to wait for the next time that one can have that encounter again it is part of the process. Mm-hmm. I, I want to move to a different essay in the book entitled Useless Organs and in this chapter, of course, you reference the work of Paul B. Preciado and his thoughts about the kind of transformation that psychoanalysis has to undergo in order to keep up with the shifting paradigms in the world mm-hmm. at large, with a particular emphasis on the place of the body in a field that has largely been all about words. Um, can you explain to us his critique and, mm-hmm. of psychoanalysis and what you think of it? Mm-hmm. Um. I love Paul's work. I love, I love Paul's work. Um, but it's funny because Paul doesn't love our work. <laughs> so that's, that's a little bit of the, that's the play. Yeah, that's how it works. And, and I, I don't think I say that's all right. That's cool. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to like all of us. Um, but Paul's funny because he, he has an ambivalent, I think, or uh, he has a funny relationship to psychoanalysis because he, he uses it tremendously. And um, Freud, I think, in the first book, Testo Junkie, is really his model because, you know, the whole question for Paul and, and Paul's question about trans is, you know, really to, on the level of the body, on a cellular level, um, push ourselves as far as possible. And he himself says, in the direction of encountering a desire that you can own as yours, all the morning all the chaos, all the process of um, taking, dismantling your gender, dismantling the way that, you know, we have been taught to enjoy, love, think, move, like, like undo all of it. Do everything you can. Test every, every possibility on yourself to get a desire that feels authentic to you. And he sees his process of transitioning from a, a woman to a man. He used to be Beatrice Preciado, and then he became Paul Preciado as as this process. But it's interesting because in the background of this, and you know, he says this is a this is a this is a project that is fighting colonialism. This is a project that's fighting totalitarianism. Having grown up in Spain, this is a project that's fighting um, racism, misogyny, all of it. Right. I mean, like, you know, if, if we really want to get out from under this, we have to start with ourselves, this dismantling. But in the background of this is Freud, <laughs> which is funny because you think this is like this, mis- you know, this Victorian misogynist that everyone hates these days. Like, how can this person be lingering around in the in the Preciado project? But he respects the fact that Freud did something to himself analyzed himself, took cocaine, cut up eels, pushed himself, pushed his colleagues, pushed the norms of the time, got interested in all forms of sexuality, bestiality, necrophilia, like you name it, um, and, and really pushed his thinking. 
you know, and the question of pleasure, the question of the pleasure principle, what's possible that this was always at the forefront of Freud's mind. And even the idea that this guy smoked cigars until his, you know, mouth was falling apart with 30 prostheses and then, you know, took a fatal dose of morphine at the end, despite not wanting to take morphine the whole time because he wanted to think. There's a real, um, there's a real admiration, I think, for Freud, who Preciado calls a cloaca maxima, uh, you know, an orifice that's going to suck everything in of his time and spit it back out in the way that he needs. Well, do you agree? I mean, do you find value in this kind of pushing yourself to the limit? I do. I do. I mean, I, I like the way that Preciado sets up the challenge. And, um, and I, I do think that what analysis does is we have, we push ourselves, we push our patients, we push ourselves and we do try to encounter an extreme limit and bounce back from it and know what we can know about ourselves, know what we can handle, um, and try to really take as much apart as we are willing to do without completely falling apart. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to hear that you like when I read your excerpts because I'm going to read another <laughs> one. I wasn't sure. Um, this is on page 174. I love this. You say, I would tell Preciado, Preciado about how the analyst tests everything on themselves first, allows the patient to pirate from them what they need. I want to explain how psychoanalysis is a body technique, writing a collective archive of bodies in a struggle against repression. Can you elaborate? And in particular, I want to know what you mean by psychoanalysis as a body technique. I mean, insofar as we listen to, I don't think of it in a Reikian sense. I'm definitely not massaging my patients, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) But I think insofar as we're trying to create the most optimal tension, the most optimal anxiety. We're finding the way to push our patients. We're listening to their pleasure and anxiety, anxiety, pleasure. We're titrating it. We're making it useful to them rather than unuseful. We're working on the level of the body. And, you know, we all know that, I mean, we all know, maybe I I know that when I work with my patients, um, things happen in their bodies. Symptoms happen in their bodies, but other things happen. Pleasure suddenly happen. Transitory feeling states come up. I mean, they they go through a lot, and they it's it they feel it in their body, despite the fact that we don't touch each other and it's just words. Mm-hmm. Um, we you know we try not to let our patients off the hook, which often means that they, they leave their body, right? And they're just intellectualizing or they just disappear somehow from themselves. And we try to keep them there in their bodies. And all of this, and I think, you know, as Preciado says it, it's a fight against colonialism, totalitarianism, misogyny, all of those are repressive forces and we are constantly battling repression. We're battling the patient's defenses. We're battling what they have repressed. We're battling the forces that always want to throw everything under Um, and, 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 you know, the political person in me, I I don't know that I love making this leap, but you know, this Julia Kristeva did it. She said that what we do as analysts is ethical because in helping people be less repressed, we're helping society at large be less repressed. And I, I think that that's true. You know, I want to talk about crisis because at one point you say, and, and tell me if I'm misreading you, mm-hmm. that we all eventually must accept living in constant crisis. And you talk about how some pa- some of the patients you've treated 
already seem to be living this way. Can you talk about these kinds of patients and, and what they teach you and what you mean about living in crisis? Yeah, it's a um, Preciado works a lot with the philosopher Agamben because Agamben um, is a Foucauldian. I think Foucault is very important to Preciado, and and Agamben kind of took this idea that that we are living in constant crisis. The modern the, the modern world is a world of crisis. With our ideal of progress and organization, we keep thinking we're going to get out of it. You know, <laughs> like we're gonna we're gonna shape up at some point. If the last four years of the pandemic has taught any of us anything after the boom years or whatever. It's like, you know, this is a dream. So this, we were living in a dream and, um, you know, we have to kind of understand that, that we are living in crisis and, and some people I think are more in touch with this either because they don't have the privilege to pretend that they're not living in crisis. Um, or just because they, they, they don't have the blinders on and they come in and you say, Hey, you know, it's going to be all right. And they're like, fuck you. <laughs> and I, that's very important, you know? And I, I think it's very important that the analysts not say, okay, well, this person's traumatized and let's get them to the place where they finally stop saying, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a nightmare out there, but we, we stay with them in that and we recognize it ourselves. And the question isn't to believe that there's an outside, but believe that there's a way to live inside of it that they haven't yet found. So you think it's to hope for a time when we won't be in crisis, either so either on the societal level or on the individual level. You you think that's a misguided hope that that's not something we should be hoping or striving I, for? I do. I think it. I think if anything in the world has shown me, it's a. It's really misguided. And um, beyond, beyond that, you know, one of the truths of analysis is that because of desire, because of sexuality, because of the libido, um, there's always a crisis around the corner because things shift in our bodies and in our life as we go along. So, you know, you have the crisis, all the little crises of childhood. But then you have the crisis of adolescence and you have the crisis of the early 20s and you have a midlife crisis and you have an aging crisis. Like this is not going to stop. And then if you have families, they're going through their process of a series of crises. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I, I think we do want like the, the obsessional organizing side of us, of us that wants to stop desire and its crisis just wants to kill this off. And that is a very violent part of ourselves because it's also the violence that's mirrored in society that wants to get rid of the disruptors, get rid of the people who are challenging to authority, get rid of the sexual deviants, get rid of, you know, get rid of all of the things that are messy. I, I want to go back to what you just said about silencing desire and its crises. Are you linking these two? Are you saying that these we live in crisis, not because just the world is a mess, but because there's something about unconscious desire itself that needs crisis or is crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's disorganizing. That's disruptive. That's um, disorderly. And instead of trying to order it or silence it or package it or streamline it, we're trying to make room for it and to let to expect its crises and to know how to meet them and to allow them to be there. I think that's the hope. And Freud puts it in a very particular way in civilization and its discontents. He says that um, 
The biggest problem for him is that we believe that there's one way to do things. <laughs> there's many people who believe that there's, there's a one right way to do things. And he hopes in the future that we will be able to accommodate the real heterogeneity of life. There's just total diversity of ways of doing things. <laughs> and I, you know, even myself, after all this time writing about these things, I'm so surprised at how intolerant I can be at certain moments. And I think we all have to be surprised by this. You know, why are they doing, why are they doing that that way? And you just, you, you know, you want to wipe this person off the planet. Mm -hmm. Or why is my life not working out a certain way? Right. Or why is a certain <laughs> thing not working out a certain way? Um, you know, we're almost out of time. I want to first tell you that I, despite all this talk about crises, I somehow feel very reassured and calmed by the things that you're saying. So thank you. Um, before we go, what, what are you working on now? What do you, have you got coming up next? Um, well, I have a piece on adolescence coming out in the New York Times. They just did a new series on mental health that I think is really awesome. It's about, you know, why can't we, why are we always blaming people for their um, mental health issues? And let's think of this on a broader scale. So I wrote about adolescence and how adolescence is awesome. And we should learn to listen to adolescence more because it's the moment of the total disorganization of everything. <laughs> the sexual disorganization of everything. Um, so that is coming out. And then today I just published like this morning, um, I published an article on abortion called a child is being aborted, looking at Freud's essay, um, a child is being beaten and asking what kind of beating fantasy the anti-abortionists are enacting against women in this country with the overturning of Roe and the kind of bounty laws and, um, uh, fetal personhood, rules that are really going to hurt people. Um, mm -hmm. If people want to follow your work or follow you, are you on social media? And, and if so, how do they find you? I'm on Instagram. I put, I put things on there that I, I publish so they can find me. What is your handle? It's Jameson Webster. Okay, perfect. Jameson, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I want to remind my guests, I've been talking to Jameson Webster and her new book is entitled Disorganization and Sex. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.